0: Welcome back to the DIRS show. Um, Tonight, when I finish this podcast, I'm heading out to the University of Miami to uh, confront um, protesters that I'm sure will be there. Uh, There will probably be three types of protesters because, you know, I have lots of things that people protest me about. There will be obviously protesters protesting my support for Israel. The speech tonight is about Israel. But efforts have been made to try to prevent me from speaking on the ground of uh, the allegation against me that I had uh, sex with an underage uh, person who I never met, never heard of, and who has now admitted that she may have confused me with somebody else. That's the second ground. And of course, having defended President Trump in his uh, first impeachment. So when people <laughs> boo me and, and attack me and uh, call me in the middle of the night, uh, I never know which of the three, or maybe there are others as well, but which of the big three they're they're protesting. So I'm prepared to defend my principles against uh, protests of of all kind. I'm having, a, uh, unfortunately, I'm going to need, and they're providing me extensive police protection because people are now um, using violence or threatening violence to prevent particularly pro-Israel speakers, from from speaking. Um, So let me tell you what I want to do today. I want to do something I've done many times in my career. Tomorrow, there will be a very important Supreme Court argument um, in the Colorado uh, case where the Colorado Supreme Court has disqualified Donald Trump from running for president for the first time in American history. uh, A person was disqualified, Uh, even in 1920, when a man was in prison uh, for sedition, which is essentially uh, uh, the same as a rebellion or uh, other kinds of crimes. Uh, uh, He he wasn't prevented from running under the 14th Amendment, but now obviously uh, the the Get Trump Brigade is trying to uh, prevent Trump from running, trying to prevent uh, millions of Americans Uh, from casting their vote, uh, including people like me who want to cast my vote against them. I have the right to vote against them for the third time, as I've said many times. I spell all this out in my book, Get Trump, and I spell out the case um, that is going to be argued uh, tomorrow in, in Get Trump as well. But what I want to do is this. Very often when I argue in the Supreme Court or when others argue in the Supreme Court, we do moot courts. That is, we ask uh, people who have clerked on the Supreme Court or who have been judges sometimes to pretend they're the judges on the Supreme Court, the nine justices, and ask the kinds of questions that uh, you can expect so you can be prepared for questions. I have to tell you, in my 60 years of arguing cases uh, in, I don't know, 32 states and Uh, almost all the circuits, and all over the United States and in some foreign countries. I have never been asked a question I wasn't prepared for, because I prepare extensively for questions, but one of the things I do is ask people to ask me what the hardest questions are. So. I'm going to do a little moot court today with myself, and you can write me letters about it, or you can listen to the argument tomorrow and see how many of the questions that I ask will be asked by the justices of the litigants. So let's turn first to the Colorado lawyer, very good lawyer, a lawyer who's argued for cases in the Supreme Court, um, has extensive experience and, you know, has written, academically uh, uh, on both sides but lawyers on both sides seem to be extremely well qualified so i anticipate their answers will be good and i know the questions will be good because i know a number of the justices and um um, and i know how they prepare and and what the questions are, are are going to be you know i've had more than one of them in my class myself i remember asking hard questions to elena kagan when she was a when she was a first year, uh, when she was a first year student, um, so uh, if if um, if I was a justice, um, one of the first questions I would ask the um, lawyer for Colorado was I would take out the Fourteenth Amendment and I would say, well, let's read the Fourteenth Amendment. No person shall be a senator or representative. It doesn't say president, a senator, or representative in Congress, or elector of president. And vice president. They could have easily said, or president. And then it has a general statement, or any other office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state. So the 14th Amendment applies to all those people. Why didn't the framers specifically identify the most important person it could possibly apply to, especially when they mention the elector of president and vice president? Why couldn't they have easily said, president if they intended to include the president that would be the first question i would ask and the anticipated answer would be well they have a general provision hold any office civil or military and obviously a president holds any office but there's a general principle of statutory construction when you have a a group of uh, specifics you can't then use the general to add to the specifics when the specifics would have been there. So I think some possibility that the Supreme Court may focus on the absence of the, of the word president. Um, uh, the uh, framers of the 14th Amendment uh, didn't specifically deal with that uh, issue. Um, uh, I think there was a draft of the 14th Amendment early on that did mention president, but we'd have to look into that and see uh, how far that got and whether that's an accurate description. I I have not done the kind of uh, research on the 14th Amendment that I did, obviously, on the impeachment clause, because I was the lawyer. If I were the lawyer in this case on either side, I would know the answer to that question and every question by heart. So that would be the the first question uh, I would ask, and I would expect the answer would not be satisfying, um, that uh, the general provision doesn't require that the president be mentioned. I would think that if the framers of the 14th Amendment wanted to include the highest office in the land, that would be the first thing they would add. No person shall be a president, a senator a representative in Congress, et cetera, et cetera. They didn't do it. The second question I would ask is, what is the meaning of section five of the 14th Amendment? It says, the Congress, it doesn't say the courts, it doesn't say the states, it doesn't say the secretary of state, it says, the Congress shall have the power. It doesn't say shared power. The power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. So question is, has Congress done that? The answer obviously is no. So in the absence of congressional legislation to enforce the 14th Amendment, can you really say that this provision of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, is self-enforcing? What's the procedure? Who has set out procedures? Is it okay for every state to have a separate procedure? Some doing it by judicial authority, some doing it by the Secretary of State. Who knows what others uh, might might try or, or do. And, and who defines the operative terms engaged? Engaged is an important term uh, in insurrection or rebellion. What does what do those terms mean? Do they include Black Lives Matter's attempt to take over the courthouses in the western United States after the murder of George Floyd? Do they include attempts to block access to public transportation by anti-Israel groups uh, in in recent uh, in recent weeks? And what does engaged mean? Uh, Well, maybe engaged can can be defined by looking a little further into the statute that says, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But the word enemies is a strange one, because generally the word enemies relates to the treason provisions of the Constitution that require that we be fighting an enemy. Who are the enemies um, of the United States if there is... An internal insurrection. Uh, Is it the insurrectionists? Well, that's a strange way to define them. They think they're the friends of America doing the right thing, doing what Thomas Jefferson said. A little blood every so often helps to grow the tree of democracy. Um, So who defines these terms? Is it Congress or is it the um, uh, state uh, by, by state? Uh, So those are the the two major uh, questions that I would ask the lawyers for the um, for Colorado. So so what questions would I ask um, would I ask um, Trump's uh, uh, lawyers? Well, the first question is, isn't it true that under our Constitution, there's no such thing as a presidential election? What there are are 51, or at the time of the frame of the Constitution, 13, um, state elections. Uh, in every state, there's an election for electors. And whoever um, wins that state election gets the state electors. Um, so what's so unusual about having every state determine the qualification? When Abraham Lincoln ran for president of the United States in 1860, He was not on the ballot of uh, several of the states, I think seven or eight or nine of them. He was not on the ballot of Southern states. Why was he not on the ballot of Southern states? He won the election, by the way, with the smallest plurality of votes at that point in time in American history. But uh, why wasn't he on the ballot? Because the parties put people on the ballot in those days and there was no Republican Party in the South. The Republican Party was an anti-slavery, anti-Southern, Northern party, and uh, President uh, Lincoln or candidate Lincoln was able to win the presidency, win the Electoral College, without being on the um, on the state um, ballots in more than a half a dozen, less than a dozen of the states. I think all of the Confederate states but one kept him off the ballot. And of course, the 1864 election, they were not part of the United States. Uh, at that point in time, they were in rebellion. And so um, the presidential election was was quite different. So um, the, the question is, what's wrong with having it done state by state? And if it can be done state by state, doesn't every state have the right to determine what the criteria or what the procedures are? Um, so although um, section five of the 14th amendment says Congress shall have the power that has to be read consistent with the rest of the constitution, which essentially gives the states the power. Um, um and then the other question that, that I would ask of uh, this one, I would actually ask, um, the lawyers for Colorado. So, so what you're saying is that the framers of the 14th amendment, uh, many of whom were Reconstructionist, radical Republicans, Lincoln Republicans, anti-Southern, they had just won the Civil War against the South. You're saying that the framers of the 14th Amendment actually wanted Mississippi and Virginia and South Carolina, the secessionist states, to decide who can be on the ballot? For president of the United States. Look, in the Lincoln case, it, that was one thing. It was the run-up of the Civil War. This is post-Civil War. Don't you think that the framers of the 14th Amendment wanted Congress to make that decision? Congress, after all, consisted largely of Reconstructionist Republicans at the time, whereas the Virginia State Legislature and the South Carolina State Legislature and the Mississippi State Legislature consisted largely of uh, sympathizers with the with the Confederacy. So these are the kinds of questions that um, I think would be asked. Another question that I think would be asked of the uh, Colorado uh, lawyers is, uh, if we rule, if we the justices rule, that uh, millions and millions of Americans can be deprived of the right to vote, um, well, then what do you think the people would do? You think they would accept that? Do you think there would be turmoil? Do you think there might be riots? Do you think it might actually lead to an insurrection or a rebellion, which is exactly the opposite of what was intended by the 14th Amendment, which was something that followed a failed uh, rebellion? What do you think the reaction would be? And Would it cause tit for tat Uh, and is this the kind of thing you think justices should take into account or do we just have to look at the words of the Constitution and apply them as we believe they were intended to be applied. Now, going off out of my role as a questioner and back to my role as just a commentator we will never know what the framers of the 14th amendment actually intended. We will never know for sure why they left out the president. We'll never know for sure whether they were willing to allow Mississippi or Virginia um to decide who's going to be on the ballot uh starting in uh, you know 1868, 1872, etc., etc. We don't know the answers to those questions. And so the real issue is what the court will do and uh, by tomorrow at this time, we'll know what the court will do. We'll have a very, very good idea what the court will do because uh, you can watch. Uh, you're not going to be able to see the justices in person, but you can, you can, you can hear them. They're going to do, I think, live transmission of the argument, and you'll be able to hear whether these questions are asked and, if so, how well are they going to be answered. Um, and uh, I mean, answering questions in a case like this could be very important. In in many cases, the justices will have made up their minds. And maybe in this case, they've all made up their minds. I'm not sure. I know one guy who's made up his mind, and that is a former student at the Harvard Law School, who's a very nice guy. And it's John Roberts, who's the chief justice. He wants a unanimous court. Whichever way the court comes out, he wants it to be unanimous. The last thing he wants is a divided Supreme Court on the issue of whether you can disqualify a president. Will he be able to bring that about? I don't know. Again, I'm not in the business of predicting uh, based on lack of information. If we had a show tomorrow night, I would give you my prediction and it would be 90% likely to be true based on the questions and the answers. But um, absent questions and answers, I'm not going to make a prediction. Um, I think most academics today are wishing and hoping that the Supreme Court disqualifies Trump. But I think if you give them a drink or two and uh, you get them to tell you the truth and you ask them what they think will actually happen, most of them will say they think the Supreme Court will find some way, maybe a narrow procedural way, section five, the absence of the word president. The one thing I think the court won't do is it won't decide as a matter of fact or in legal interpretation, whether Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. The Colorado court did find that. The main secretary of state did find that. A number of the state courts, by the way, that said, no, you can't apply the 14th Amendment to a president, no, we're rejecting the attempt to take him off the ballot, did, however, say he was guilty of an insurrection. But I don't think this Supreme Court is going to get into that because I think that would be very divisive. I don't think you're going to get nine justices agreeing as to whether the actions taken by uh, uh, then-President uh, Donald Trump on, on, on in early January um, constituted, um, in the terms of the Constitution, engaged in insurrection or rebellion or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. I, I just don't think they're going to do that. I think they're going to find a procedural way out around it. And again, without making a prediction, I do think the most likely result will be that um, absent action by Congress under the paragraph five, uh, this is not self-enforcing and Congress has a role to play and uh, Congress has not played that role. Look, there are parts of the 14th Amendment that you can say maybe are self-enforcing. The 14th Amendment says that... um, uh, equal protection of the law, uh, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law or deny any person the equal protection of law. But these are phrases that are commonly interpreted by the by the courts, whereas the terms insurrection, rebellion, um, and the other words um, are not commonly. They're substantive terms, not procedural terms. And so I think the argument that The 14th Amendment is not self-enforcing that it requires congressional action is a strong one that uh, the court might might uh, 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 grasp onto. Having said that, I'm the first to acknowledge that nobody ever can know what the framers actually intended. It's like asking what God intended uh, when he wrote words in in the Bible, thou shalt not kill. Does that include abortion? Uh, Does it include self-defense? Uh, actually, the word is "thou shalt not murder." Uh, Lo tirtzach, the Hebrew word for 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 murder, is tirtzach. So probably it doesn't. But uh, there are people who think it does, and um, you know, constitutional interpretation a little bit like biblical interpretation. Obviously, the Constitution was written by fallible human beings, and for those who believe in the infallibility of the Bible, um, it's it's a different source. But the the job is the same. To interpret, uh, you know, there's a great, a great story they 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 tell in the Talmud, and it's a bunch of rabbis sitting around deciding an arcane issue of whether or not a certain utensil, a stove, is, is is kosher or not. Big deal, but it was big deal to them. And so one of the great rabbis, Rabbi Eliezer, says, "I know I'm right in your interpretation, and even though all of you are against me, even though it's ten to one against me." I know I'm right, and I know that's what God intended. And in fact, if God intended that to have been the right interpretation, let the river change its direction. The rabbis will look out the window. Oh my God, the river changed direction. Pretty good argument. But they don't accept it. And they said, we don't decide cases on rivers. Then the same Rabbi Eliezer says, well, if I am right, let the wall shake. The wall shake? The wall shake? <laughs> and the rabbis say, We don't decide cases based on the wall shaking. So Rabbi Eliezer finally says, all right, here's my last argument. And God comes down from heaven, comes down from heaven and says, rabbis, let me tell you, Rabbi Eliezer is correct. That's what I intended. And the rabbis scoff at God and say, hey, God, you gave us a Torah. You gave us a Bible you gave us the means to interpret it. Now, please go back to heaven, mind your own business, leave it to us here on earth to decide how to interpret the Constitution. I remember telling that story to Justice Scalia. He loved it, he loved it. And and, and, and he told the story to many people um, because obviously the framers of the Constitution gave us tools uh, to interpret. He, the tool he took, Very seriously was originalist and uh, looking at the not only intention of the framers but the intention of those who ratified the Constitution. So he was satisfied that he had the appropriate uh, uh, tools. And uh, but there's no perfect solution to these problems, and that's why who is appointed a a judge or a justice is is very important. And that's why unanimity in this case would be very important. If if justices ranging from those appointed by Democrats to those appointed by Trump and Republicans all agree, the decision will have more credibility than, for example, Bush versus Gore had. Five to four decision, five Republicans voting for the Republican, four Democrats voting for the Democrat. I wrote a book about it called Supreme Injustice, in which I talked about how this had really hurt the credibility of the court. So, Watch the argument, listen to the argument tomorrow, and then next week when we come back, we'll, we'll see how correct I was or wasn't. But in the meantime, let's take some letters. Oh, this is an interesting one because it deals just with what we're talking about. Great as always, how legally could Gore be allowed to concede then take it back? Thank you, sir. Didn't quite do that. I was very much involved in that. He was on the way to conceding. He was in the car. He was about to go to the studio and concede. And then he learned some facts and he didn't actually go and and concede. And, of course, a president could concede or not concede. I mean, you know, that's not a legal issue. It's uh, more a political one. Uh, Yes, I remember the show Beat the Clock. Remember I said that that's what this legal proceeding is all about. Everybody's trying to beat the election, beat the clock. Uh, I remember the show Beat the Clock. I watch it every week for its long run. Good, clean, fun, answering good, clean questions. Now that's too boring for our advanced society. I used to love those those game shows. Uh, My favorite uh, was Can You Top This? I'm probably too old for any of you to remember that show. Can You Top It were five great stand-up comics, great comedians. And uh, the, the, the host of the show would throw out a subject. Uh, marriage. And without any preparation, each of the five contestants would have to come up with a joke about marriage. And there was a laugh meter. And whoever got the greatest amount of laughs uh, won it. And each person had the opportunity to top the other person's laugh meter. So I used to love those shows in between watching The Lone Ranger and Superman return to Us days, to the thrilling days of yesteryear, the Sound of hoofbeats, The Cry of Hiro Silver, The Lone Ranger Rides Again uh, was Superman. Wow, I used to love those shows. Uh, somebody said about why radio was better than television, the pictures were better on the radio because they were pictures that you came up with from your own mind. So I used to love the radio. Little plastic radio, probably cost my parents $12, sat on top of the refrigerator, and uh, it was our life. It was way before television. And, of course, <laughs> before social networking and anything like that. So we would sit around that little radio and listen. All right, here's one. Boy, you certainly have killed any respect you may have ever had. I, as a lawyer, find you reprehensible. I read, I read those as well, too. Um, uh, I like your devotion to the Constitution. However, the Secretary of Homeland... Deference had his oath to protect America. And if you think allowing 10 million immigrants into this country is not treason, you're crazy and your liberal feelings are out of control. No, it's not treason. Read the Constitution. Treason is defined in the Constitution as waging war against enemies. It's not maladministration. The framers of the Constitution thought about that and rejected it. It may be useful at some point to explain how few cases are accepted by the Supreme Court. I think it's less than 2%. That's right. Uh, Very, very small number. In typical cases, they don't even get a minute of concern by the Supreme Court. They're just denied pretty much automatically. Um, But when you get a case involving the President of the United States and the presidency of the United States, that's not in the 2% range. That's in the 98% range. So that's why this case was taken. I don't know whether or not the um, immunity case will be taken. That too involves the president, but that's a case that could await uh, first a trial and then a decision after the trial. So I don't know how that case will come out. Here's one. As we live in an age of godliness, why do we expect people to act morally? Well, let me tell you why. Because belief in God has nothing to do with morality. During ages in which everybody believed in God, they killed each other. The Crusades, the Inquisitions, uh, uh, those were done in the name of God. Uh, I don't see any historical relationship between godliness and morality. Indeed, to me, the most moral person is the atheist. I'm not one. I'm an agnostic. But the atheist who honestly knows for certain there is no God and throws himself in front of a bus to save the life of a young boy who would otherwise be killed, that to me is the highest level of morality. He doesn't expect anything. He doesn't expect to go to heaven. He's just doing the right thing without God. Now, why am I an agnostic? Because I'm a skeptic about everything. I'm a skeptic about God. I'm a skeptic about my own religion. I'm a skeptic about evolution, uh, I'm a skeptic about, you know, all kinds of science. I'm a, I'm a skeptic about philosophy. I'm a skeptic about truth. Uh, I was just born a skeptic, and I don't think that means I lack morality. I have very high principles, and one of my principles is skepticism, skepticism about everything, which is what leads me to be a fervent def- defender of the marketplace of ideas and the First Amendment. If I knew the truth with a capital T, I would probably favor censoring Um, Other ideas, but because I don't know the truth, because I believe in the truthing process in which we try, try as best we can to arrive at an approximation of truth, uh, whether it be physical truth or moral truth, um, we need to have an open marketplace of ideas. Uh, As someone who has spent their life in the judicial branch of the government and dedicated their life to the law, how do you cope with what seems to be the judiciary Going completely off the rails. It's very frustrating, and I agree with you. I don't think the judiciary today warrants the the trust and the faith that um, uh, it ought to. Um, you know, the judiciary, you, you 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 particularly the federal judiciary, you appoint people for life. You anticipate and expect that they will satisfy their oath of office, which is to do justice blindly. Again, go back to the Torah. Uh, do not recognize faces. That's one of the first commandments to judges. Do not recognize faces. Do not recognize races. Do not recognize genders. Do not recognize political parties. Wear that blindfold. Administer justice objectively and blindly. It's an aspiration. It will never, ever be achieved, but at least it's something to work toward. All right off to the university of miami to defend israel to defend myself if i have to we'll see if those issues come back and i'll give you a full report on what happened when i see you on the Dirt show next week for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so, you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring: a laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh.